Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Dustin Garrow. He's an industry expert in the uranium space. He discusses the output from the Section 232 petition. Also, his view on what's going to come from the 90-day working group and the impact in the marketplace. We discussed the Kaz Atom Prom announcement from earlier today and what that's going to mean for the market. Plus, he gives us some investment hacks, what to look out for and what to avoid. Good morning, Dustin. How are you, sir? Doing great. How are you, Matthew? Not bad, not bad. Now, we spoke just before the whole Section 232 announcement came out, and obviously that played out the way it did. I don't want to waste your time discussing that because <laughs> I think that's been over-talked. Over but I think the general consensus is it's it's obviously moved things forward in a positive way for for U.S. companies in the sense we've now got this 90-day working group. What's your take on the 90-day working group? Is it going to produce something useful or is it going to create more questions than answers? Well, one thing I'd like to comment on, first of all, is people, when they read the memorandum from the president, are kind of uh, ignoring the the. the the, the sentence where he said he did not concur with the Department of Commerce, it was predicated with at this time. And I think what uh, he really was focusing on was the concern of the entire fuel cycle. He's convinced that it's not just the uranium production area, but also conversion and enrichment uh, from a national security standpoint. So I think the idea that it you know totally put 232 uh, to bed. It did officially, but I understand that the uh, working group, uh, there has been quite a bit of input to it already. I think there'll be more of a coordinated effort out of the domestic industry, not just uranium producers, but clearly the one conversion uh, facility and kind of a restart at looking at American centrifuge by Centris. So it will be a, a, a package. And, and I think they will come up with some kind of resolution, remedy, or approach, which might be a bit more of what I'm calling utility neutral. In other words, it wouldn't put uh, a significant burden on the utilities, or it may not have any. They could get tax credits. Uh, the Department of Defense could sign long-term purchase agreements. So I think it will be uh, more, much more palatable uh, to the utilities. So the utilities will get continue to get subsidies in relation to uranium or for other or other parts of their business. What are you saying? I think it's still early days. I think there's a, you know a number of uh, approaches being looked at, and and I think if you're a, you know I know the utilities quite well, they would like to see a domestic fuel cycle uh, long term, just from a diversification standpoint. So I think if there can be a program that's reasonable and not, you know, what they would consider a significant economic threat, they could even be supportive of some of the potential remedies. Right. But if, if we look at um, the, the, I said we wouldn't, but of course, we're diving straight in, back into Section 232 is if we look at that, that was I think adversarial was a word which was bandied around. Do you think that 
having with the benefit of hindsight, it could have been done better because they use the phrase just now, utility neutral. Do you think it could have been utility neutral from the beginning? Because the utilities didn't want to get stuck with the bill for this. And that's why they were not necessarily supportive. So how would it could have been done differently? Uh, perhaps it could have been. But again, I think it started out with a certain uh, approach on a remedy. And, and to try to change that in the, you know, in the middle of the stream. And it would have involved the government more. And, and so I think it was maybe a necessary step right. to now have the government look at the situation with the fuel cycle, which, as the president said, he's convinced there are some significant risks in, in, the, in the process here. So, so I think that it was an important first step. But as you know, uh, perhaps, unfortunately, it kind of put the market globally uh, almost in a hiatus, uh, certainly on the, the spot side. As you know, the volumes were down first half of the year. Price weakened. Um, I think Cameco, for example, uh, Tim Gitzel's made it clear they kind of stepped back from the market because they were involved in 232. And the other thing, and I know you, you've heard it from me before, is term contracting. You know, the U and we do have a US utility that entered the market. Uh, offers were due last Friday, looking at 2021 out through like 2025. Yeah. So I think they're beginning now to look once again at term contracts, which will really be the driver. Well, let, so, let, let, let's come back to that. Let's come back to that. I want, I want to finish off on the working group, make sure I understand it. So you're saying there's a lot of uh, paddling viciously, you know, underwater. It's, it, there's a lot of work happening in the background, but nothing official has happened yet. No, I think, again, that will take till October 10th, which I believe is at the end of the 90 days. But one has to, you know, the, the remedies, whatever they are, will have to be agreed kind of well before that. So I think, you know, we'll see probably by mid to late September, there will be some roadmap. We probably won't know what it is. But what's actually happening here? You know, are the uranium equities businesses, I'm thinking specifically of Jeff and, and Mark at this time, uh, of UR Energy and Energy Fuels, have they been engaged in a conversation? Are they part of these discussions which are going on? Are you aware? I, th I think that uh, virtually all of the participants in the U.S. fuel cycle are being engaged to some degree. If you want to be involved, they certainly are being encouraged to, uh, to be part of the, the discussions, which makes sense. It, it does. And I just wonder how much share of voice the uranium companies who started this process are going to get in terms of, you know, you know, what say do they get at that table? Do they get a seat at the table for this decision? Or is it just made um, without them and they just, you know, deal with whatever cars they're dealt? I can't imagine it can be done without them. I mean, let's face it, the fuel cycle has got to look at the major components. Now, having said that, Centris enrichment is a key factor here because we have no domestic enrichment capability anymore. And so I know that that had been brought up even earlier in the 232 process, that that Washington was 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 concerned mm. about enrichment capability. So now, but I think, as you say at the table, I think there's a seat for everyone that wants to be there. 
Right. Because okay. you know, some of the best producers didn't want to participate in the 232. But I think this is a different different process. So it, it is a different process. And I you know, I understand your point. It's it was a not necessarily a process they were desirous of, of making, but it was a necessary one to get a bigger conversation going. Okay, so I accept that is what you're saying. Um, and, and before we get on to the contracts discussion, can we talk about the WNA? Because that seems to be the next big moment. We're meeting a lot of people here in London um, that, that week of the, I think, you know, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th of September. Looks like everyone's in town. We're certainly getting, you know, uh, people are picking up the phone to us and uh, letting us know that they're in town. I mean, that what does that say to you, the fact that so many people are going to be here? Well, you know, again, the participant list is pretty extensive, over 400 participants. But if you really look at it, the U.S. utilities are pretty thinly represented. Certainly Converdine's there, Centris, uh, most of the producers will be there, but kind of the utility side for whatever reason, I think there, there's less than a handful that are currently registered. So the, the next big meeting for the U.S. will be Nashville at the end of October. So there will be some outcome from the working group by then. So it's more likely to be a hotbed of right. discussion rather than London. I think the, the big thing, just so you know, at WNA will be the introduction of the new nuclear fuel market report which yeah. uh, I've been involved in, so we can't talk about it because it'll be revealed. But it will, uh, you know, I think highlight the supply challenges, certainly in uranium and conversion. So it will be more optimistic if you're a supplier right. than even the one from 2017. So right, I mean that that's a that's a, a whole nother discussion that the 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 fuel report. You know, I think we'll. Put a link up at this moment to a discussion we had with Vimy around that because again, I think you had um, Julian was involved with that and he has some strong views on that. But we, we'll come back to that another time, perhaps either at the WNA or after the WNA when you can talk about it. Um, okay, so so what do you so what do you read by that? You're saying that the U.S. utilities they're waiting for Nashville because it kind of it uh, coincides with the working group output potentially and that London is not important, but for lots of other people, there will be lots of discussions going on, but that's all it's going to be, chatter. Uh, yeah, pretty much, because no one knows the direction of the working group at this point, but I think there'll be a lot of, well, what do you think kinds of discussions. But I think it shows, again, the interest, particularly coming out of the financial community. There's a pretty extensive list of investor groups that will be represented at the London meeting, so it shows they're they're becoming much more interested in the in the sector. Okay, well let, let's come on to that again. Let's maybe sneak that in before we talk utility con term contracts. Okay, which I know is something that you know a lot about. You've got you've got a few um, RFPs. You know, well, there's only one I'm aware of. The Duke Energy put out one recently, which looked to me like a feeler as to sort of understand what the sort of sentiment is in the market, certainly around pricing. And what's your take on that? Um, well, I understand there are some of the other U.S. utilities that have been doing even less formal inquiries. Right. They're starting to pulse the suppliers. Uh, you know, my needs are 2021, 22. What have you got? What do you think? You know, what you're thinking on pricing. 
Um, so again, this is a necessary part of the term contracting process. Keep in mind, here's one, I'll give you one data point. Since about 2000, 70% of the volume placed under term contracts has been done as what's called the off, off market. It's not formal requests, it's just direct communications and negotiations. Yeah. So it's, this is an important part of that process. Right, okay. It's a case of I'm asking for a friend. Is that why? <laughs> it's not me. Okay. Well, let's come on to that. Kind of comes neatly onto contracts, which you did allude to earlier. Term contracts. They they have been and always were an important part of the marketplace. What do you think's happening at the moment? When do you think their act people are going to be able to come come back on and and, and sign longer term contracts? So give me a sense of that timing. Yeah, well, what we've been seeing is some of the smaller Eastern utilities have been in the Eastern European utilities have been uh, pursuing EUP contracts, so enriched product. But I think the traditional term contracting market, as we're well aware, has been extremely quiet. Um, and once the deals that have been done have been, again, the midterm market focus because the prices are much more attractive to the utilities than they get from the primary producers. But I think the day is coming when the utilities that want to cover off post 2020 or later really have to seriously begin to look at Cameco with you know contracts to restart MacArthur, uh, Kaz Adam Prom, which you just know overnight announced an extension yep. of their production cutbacks. Yep. So I mean, it, I think it's starting to get pretty serious on the longer term side. And the newer producers, yep. virtually all of them need some portfolio of term contracts yeah, they, before they, they're developing. Yeah, they, they, okay. They, they, there's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts here. So, and, and you've mentioned a few of them. So, uh, Question is, so are people buying in the market at the moment? Well, certainly in spot. Yeah. But very, very little in the term market. Right. But some activity, I think, in the midterm market. So that's two or three years out. And, and who, so, who, who's doing the buying? Well, yeah, people are contracting. But, and that's what the U.S. utilities have been doing the last several years is to contract in the in the carry trade or midterm market rather than traditional long-term contracts. Right. So that's what's led to the actions by Cameco and others. Right. So Cameco made an announcement a couple of uh, weeks ago, possibly three weeks ago. Kazatom Prom overnight, they made an announcement about continuing this 20%. I think that was, that was the number they were talking about, you know, cut back in production through the end of 2021. Uh, with no view of what will happen after that. What do you think that tells the market? What does that announcement tell the market? Well, I think that uh, certainly the message is more and more material is being left in the ground. You know, that's another 14 million pounds that Kazakhstan won't produce. And I thought it was interesting, Tim Gitzel mentioned on their quarterly, mm -hmm. that their cutbacks plus spot purchases 18 and 2019 represent about 70 million pounds swing. At some point, we're going to start to see that gaining real traction in the market. So, for sure, for sure. Um, I'm I'm just wondering if if that was a Kazatom Proms announcement was a response to Cameco 
is there tactical maneuvering here? Because the, the history of Kaz Adam promise, when they've said they would cut back, they didn't. So their reputation is slightly tarnished by that. Do you think they're serious? Yeah, I think certainly over the, even the last, let's say 18 to 24 months, they've become much more value versus volume oriented. And, and uh, you know, I think going forward, there was some confusion over the cutbacks and, and, you know, there's a little bit of an uptick in production this year, but that was baked into their subsoil uh, license procedure. And it's only a few of the projects. So I think they are very serious about reducing their output and, and keeping it out of an oversupplied market. Okay. So just to kind of close down on the macro stuff, because I know utility, uh, sorry, uh, uranium companies are tired of talking the macro. They want to talk about their companies, and, and so do I. Um, but you're saying timing-wise, you think October, Nashville could be a better time to get a sense of what U.S. utilities are thinking and about doing. It follows close on the heels of the WNA, where lots of conversations will happen. When do you think you'll see movement? I think before the end of the year. I okay. think the utility once the working group comes up with whatever uh, solution or remedy they're likely to come up with. Uh, again, I think the utilities with big programs, uh, particularly in the US, this will be a US utility driven market. Um, and they'll start saying, well, I need to start contracting out in that period. You mentioned Duke, which is a confidential request, but it's, you know, that 21 through 25, Duke's got 11 reactors burning 5 million pounds of uranium a year, they have to cover that off. They don't have an option. And I don't think they're going to rely on midterm trader-driven contracts. Because right. there will be a question about future deliverability. Where are you? You're not a producer. Where are you going to get that material? Okay, you, you put a stake in the stand. You're saying before the end of the year, things will start moving. That's that's really interesting. I've, you know, we've had conversations where people think it'll be in the new year, but it, it, it's close, right? It's close. Um, so let's talk about things which investors want to understand. So there's a bunch of investors who've been in uranium for the last two, three years. They are tired. They want things to move. There's some people who are, you know, like I say, sticking it out. There's others who have given up, but say they'll come back in when it starts moving. And then you've got a whole new raft of uh, investors like crypto investors who like the, you know, they're very similar profiles, you know, the type of returns they're looking for. And then people who just don't understand the uranium story, like we've spoken to lots of gold investors, battery metal investors, and they wanted to understand it. But the macro story just doesn't make sense. So can I ask you for your investment thesis, your investment hacks, as it were, for if you're going to pick a company, what do you look for if you're an investor? What do you need to see? If Don't name, don't name names, but give me the things that they need to have in place. Uh, well, a couple of things. And as you know, I'm a little biased being the chief commercial officer for Yellow Cake. I think, you know, if one has an investment portfolio, the UPC yellow cakes make sense as part of that pure physical purchase. Uh, some of the other investor groups historically have then said, OK, I will then layer on my own physical inventory, which, as you point out, uh, during the second half of last year, we had a lot of activity in that area. Estimates of eight to ten million pounds being acquired. And, and, and sat on. But I think as we entered the new year, 
uh, a lot of those uh, investors kind of stepped back because the price did, uh, let's say, flatten out. Um, and we could have seen a bit of that material sold. I mean, that's been one of the concerns voiced by Cameco, that this is now part of the market that you really can't model in, is when a specific physical inventory holder might move some material. Um, but now recently, I've been told that at least one is starting to buy quietly. I don't think it's big volumes, but they're, they're looking around, they're seeing what's happening. And the other thing I think that's important is UX and trade tech, old line industry consultants have both come out talking about the future production supply picture being much more uncertain. And so that, you know, the stars are kind of aligning on, it's not just investment analysts, but it's the, you know, industry market analysts. It, it's almost everyone saying, hey, and then I think when the WNA report comes out, it won't be overly specific, but we'll suggest that kind of a market scenario. So everyone's beginning to look in much more detail. Now the companies, I'm always an advocate of, you know, nearer term production is good. Mm -hmm. And there's a few companies that can bring on production in the next year or two. And then you look, in my view, at, you know, the management groups, the deposits, their locations, and then it gets a lot more complicated. You know, I think that, uh, again, not naming names, there are some development projects that are closer than others. And if you don't have the term contracts and the like, it's going to take a while. That's going to be, like I said, a critical, a critical element. But, but there isn't a lot of uranium expertise left out there. So you've got to then begin to look at mining, mining expertise, uh, commitment to their projects, things like that. So that's interesting. So from what you're saying there, that if if you're near term production, it, you don't necessarily need to be a Cameco or a Kazatomprom to find a place, a niche in the market. If you're near term production as a small company, you, you can get onto that buying cycle now if you're a couple of years away from production. Is that, is that what you're saying? You could, but you have to have a very credible story. Again, the utilities, they don't care about your common share price. They don't, no. they need uranium in a can. And so I think they've learned, you know, let's, let's, uh, one example is, is Berkeley with uh, Salamanca. It looked like it was moving forward very quickly. They ran into some permitting regulatory issues and now it looks like it's starting to go further out into the future. Well, if you're what, what happens is the utilities tend to sign small contracts with a new producer, particularly if they're not familiar with the company or the people. So, I mean, little as 200,000 pounds a year as kind of a test contract. So even if you're only going to produce a million pounds or so, you've got to get a number of contracts put in place. With, with several utilities. So that's a real challenge. That's a real challenge for a company, as you say, which may not necessarily have the historic uh, expertise, uh, experience of dealing with utilities. You're gonna have to sign in that example, you know, minimum five contracts. Without hitting the drum too hard, it gets back to the off-market side. Just as a quick uh, review, when I did the bankable contracts for Paladin, that was all done off market. I went to Europe, I went to Japan, I went all over North America, 
And that's how those contracts got put in place. You can't wait for the telephone to ring and it's, you know, Duke, Exelon, Entergy, you know, Southern, all wanting to do a contract with you. If you've not been out there letting them know you exist and you can actually meet their needs. Yeah, I th- I th- that's 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 really insightful in terms of the things that investors should be looking for because I think a lot of the smaller companies are spending a lot of time talking about the macro story and not enough about the detail of the basic mining that you know they need to deliver because those things don't go away. Those rules are the same for uranium as they are for you know gold or, or battery metals. You've got to get that right, and you've got to have a team on board who can deliver that. The complicating component is here. You, it's not so easy to sell into an open market. You've got you're, you're competing, and these contracts are not easy to come by. And if you're a small company, these are going to be small contracts initially until you prove yourself. It's it's tough. And another aspect, Matthew, that doesn't really get in the calculus is logistics and transportation. You know, having worked at Paladin, there was one ship a month that called at Walvis Bay that would ha- haul Class Seven uranium, you know, material. So it, it gets into, you know, logistics, uh, a lot of things that, that could hinder deliverability. Why is that? Because what you're saying that uranium can't be transported with other types of commodities or there are, specialist uh, skills required? Shipping lines that won't uh, handle class seven, which is radioactive material. So again, coming out of Walvis Bay, they were servicing Rossing, Langer, uh, Kalakira, but there was made one ship a month. So you had to transport to the port uh, at the right time, get it on the ship. Hopefully the ship didn't get delayed or canceled. So, I mean, there's a lot of, of, of other factors other than, like you say, gold or, you know, a precious metal, something like that. Okay. So it's that all that gets taken into account by the utilities because you have to deliver to a converter. That's where they buy the material, not at your plant. So when do you think the institutional money is gonna get comfortable with the uranium space enough to get come back into it? Because it's small, it's small. It's a $10 billion market, right? It's, it's tiny. So how many of those people need to get comfortable for it, be, for it to be easy for some of these uh, developers to actually get into production? Is that another problem for them to overcome? Or do you think it's going to be plain sailing? It's another challenge. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, I did a, a investment roadshow for Yellowcake in April when we we bought more material. There's a lot of interest out there, and this was, you know, North America. There's interest in Europe, but again, I think the investors now have seen 10, 12 years, some of them, of the business, and that, like you say, they've been in and out. They ask a lot of much more detailed due diligence questions. You know, you need to convince me that this is going to work rather than you scream uranium and I can't get my checkbook out fast enough. I think those days are gone. So, so. Do you, do you, well, I, I wanted to ask you this from the, from the beginning, which was, again, my days of banking, if there was a project which had a uranium component anywhere else in the world other than America, and it needed to be funded with American dollars, that was something that I, we knew would be very, very difficult because that was in the days when America controlled the uranium space. They had more of a seat at the table, as it were. Um, these days, it seems to be a different 
set of problems because the U.S. isn't as uh, you know relevant. So if that's not too strong a word uh, in terms of the financing of these things uh, as they used to be, do you think it's easier today than it was yesteryear? Oh, I don't. Not necessarily easier. I think that uh, the U.S. guys are interested in investing. Some of them have said, "I wish there was, for example, a U.S.-based trading company. I'd be interested in investing in that." But I think that's why they look more at a, a UPC or a yellow cake or something like that. They get in the commodity, they see the price uh, movement. Uh, but yeah, the, it's the big uh, global international finance sources that are going to be putting, I think, uh, support to projects in Africa or wherever. There just aren't that many projects. So when you really get down to it, the other thing that's interesting is there's more. Uh, interest coming out of Australia. There's a lot of financing. So if you've got an Australian based project, I think there'll be interest just, you know, quote, locally, in maybe financing some of these things. So but yeah, in the US, because the industry has been small and declining. Um, I think there, there's not the interest except maybe in the physical funds. So that's it. That, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that's true. Um, can I just just quickly talk about UXC and and Trade Tech? Obviously, they're the, they're the two big guys in this space, and you, you mentioned that they have similar views um, about the supply side. Um, with the demand side, do you think that is a story that's well understood in terms of the that's been told in the market? It's been told a thousand times, but why, if that is the case, why aren't people seeing it? It, it seems strange. Um, well, I think some people are saying it, but I think that it depends to me. I'm a, I'm a great advocate of where you're located. If you're in Germany, nuclear is dead. So you're like, I'm not interested, basically. Uh, in the U.S., well, they're cutbacks. You know, they're going to be reducing now. As you know, the states are stepping in with the zero emission credit, but it's kind of uh, nuclear. Uh, people, I'll say, you know, I'm in the U.S. and I work in nuclear. They go, really? I mean, it's like, huh? Does that exist? And it's still 20% of U.S. generation. So part of it is kind of locational, or let's let's put it that way. Um, I mean, if you're in the Far East, the Chinese are now back on the gas pedal. You know, they've what gone what five new reactors, and you know, ordering more uh, Middle East, uh, India, perhaps. So again, that's what I'm saying is it's more. You know, what do you read on the front page of the Wall Street Journal kind of thing? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. But, but, but it just see, the other funny one to me is, so, so thank you for that. Because it, again, I, I don't get the, the understanding gap. Um, the other thing which has crept up recently is this anti-renewable lobby. You know, we're talking about the, the Schellenbergs or the Michael Moores. They're, they're anti-wind. They're... Anti-renewable because it, it it employs or uses far more resource than it actually can justify for the power and energy it creates consistently. Like I I don't know whether I believe it. I don't know enough about it at the moment. But there's another narrative coming out in support of nuclear from left field. That's come out of in the last three months. Are you, are you buying into any of that? Yeah, no question. But I think, you know, being here in the U.S., obviously, we're very exposed to the views of, say, the Democratic Party. 
which has always been anti-nuclear. And so now they're in a bit of a quandary because we, as you point out, well, renewables have their place. That's a point. All of this has their place somewhere. I've never been a big renewable fan, but I think Tesla and their storage batteries, you go, well, you know, that's being looked at. So yeah, I think there's been more of a, hey, nuclear looks like it might have a place, but the problem is the big units. You know, the answer may be the smaller modular units because the multi-billion dollar reactors here in the US are, are really becoming, they're still kind of a, a challenge, let's put it that way. Okay, so, you're, talking, you're talking about um, SMRs on the reactor side, nuclear reactor side, not, you're not talking about battery side like VRFB or anything. Yeah, I think it would be a very courageous utility after what happened with uh, the, the newer reactors, although Southern and Georgia Power will finish Vogel. I think to stand up and say, yeah, we want to build a $6 billion mega reactor somewhere. That just doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit very well here anymore. Now, it may make sense, but it doesn't fit the, the narrative. It works in China. It works in the Middle East, but India. So we'll just have to wait and see. Okay. I, I, I guess a discussion for another day. So in, in summary, what would you say to retail investors about the uranium space? Have faith? You got Having been in this business as long as I have, patience is a virtue. And I think you just have to be educated on what really are the fundamentals and, you know, not get too focused on the spot price. I think we talked about that before, because that is a very, very small part of the market. It's how do these people really fuel these multi-billion dollar plants? And it's not out of the spot market. So it's when the term market starts to pick up, that's where the action will be. Then you have to say, you know, rising tide will lift all boats. You know, the small exploration guys will get drawn, you know, they, they will improve. But I think it's a nearer term production is a, is a real plus, having that ability to produce in the next two, three years. So. Yeah, I, th I think, I, I, yeah, the rising tide analogy, I think, does work. But I think you can still pick better winners. <laughs> Uh, by understanding the basics of mining, um, but you know your view, your experience telling you that what you're hearing from utilities suggests that they should go before the end of this year. That will help everyone. And it may be, yeah, as you say, early next year. I mean, we're I'm talking kind of the yeah. next six months, as opposed to well, it's so far out there you can't see it. But it the, the it's starting to to get to the point where they have to make decisions on covering their fuel needs. And the other thing, just quickly, the conversion market went from under $5 a kilogram to 19 in the last year and a half. And so that it shows what happens when you cut back supply and it's never going back to five. So, you know, the utilities have to take that into account and enrichment's starting to go up. So they've, they've got, it's not going down, so. Wow, a whole set of new problems to think about. <laughs> New products. That's right. Dustin, thank you very much for today. An absolute education as always. Lo I love listening to that. Uh, like I say, a bunch of conversations which spin out off of that. It'd be great to catch up with you after WNA when we've had a few other chats with people and maybe sort of see what some of that chatter leads to. We'll talk then.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.